This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest The Culture section. Um, I'm absolutely up to my gills with doing Ukraine and need to go back to our normal format and wanted to go back on our Tuesday, which is the normal day before all heck broke loose, to look at the culture section. And I thought we would take a long look at Alfred Hitchcock, which again is where my son Benjamin and I started when I was appalled that he was a very avid movie buff and indeed is a movie critic and has a vlog that does very well to my pride, but knew very little about the great kind of auteurs of cinema. And so we've taken a long journey through them. And I thought that we would do the same because it re-piqued my interest in movies, which has always been a passion of mine and fits into the culture section. And Alfred Hitchcock, in many ways, is the greatest director ever. And one of the reasons I would argue this is that, like in baseball, he has the home run record. He didn't just have a great year, or like someone like uh, Francis Ford Coppola, a great decade, the 1970s, but rather he went on and on and on and has the all-time home run record. You can look at Hitchcock movies that are excellent going back to the 20s, but really in his prime, you look at the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, with him stopping in the 70s, but 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, there is a movable feast of films to choose from. And that's an awfully long time to be at the top of your game. That's not a brilliant season. That's a brilliant career. And so I thought I'd break this down into the decades and look at three movies by Hitchcock in each decade to get you started. Uh, there are many, many, many more. And one of the fun things was trying to choose with Benjamin the three to share with you. But there are many, many, many more. And if you are interested in more about Hitchcock and like a decade of his movies and want to hear about more of what I would suggest, please do write me a note and I'd be happy to pass that along. But we're going to look at three from the 1930s when Hitchcock was fully ensconced in the UK before he set off to the US and really hit an early groove that is that laid the template for everything to come. But I think many of these movies, like A Good Wine, really do stand the balance of time. And two of them are two of my all-time favorite Hitchcocks, and we will talk about them. The first is The 39 Steps in 1939. In some ways, this is the prototype for all that was to follow. It is a great movie, and the pacing and the editing and the style of it are remarkably modern and hold up remarkably well to scrutiny, even today. Uh, I've watched it, I don't know, 10 times in my life. Uh, it's a very short film. It's about 86 minutes long, and it flies by. Because in it, uh, again, Hitchcock was good when he took good source material, which he often did. He was a deceptively well-read man who underestimated uh, his intellectual side because he was a working uh, kind of jobbing uh, director, which was a thing one used to be rather than an auteur. It was only later that the French cinema, the Cahiers de Cinema guys, uh, Truffaut, Godard, René, look back at Hitchcock and see him as an auteur, see him as an author, that all these films reflect Hitchcock's preoccupations more than any actor's preoccupations. But at the time, Hitchcock combines that artistic greatness with just being a jobbing director where he had to get a film out every year or every other year and had to get it in in budget and had to make it popular. And this all conditioned his greatness. When you then apply that accessibility to artistic greatness, I think you're on to something. And that's what Hitch certainly did. And the first great 
of these films is The 39 Steps in 1935. Again, from the John Buchan 1915 novel. I love Buchan. For those of you who don't know John Buchan, this was James Bond before Ian Fleming, and Richard Hannay was his gentleman spy. And Buchan, I, I was stuck somewhere once and read all of Buchan, the, the complete Richard Hannay works, and it was a joy to do so. But one of the greatest stories was The 39 Steps. And Hitchcock took this as a basis and then basically using that structure rewrote an awful lot of it. Richard Hannay is a, a, a gentleman uh, on vacation in London who becomes embroiled in an international spy ring called the 39 Steps. Um, as this goes along, his job is to stop Professor Jordan from sending secrets out of Britain. And one of the great lines ending the film is when he talks to Mr. Memory at the London Palladium and yells out as he's being led away, quick, what are the 39 steps? And still, when you see that, your pulse races as Mr. Memory decides to tell the truth. And it's a, a tremendous moment. It's a buildup over 86 minutes to this one dramatic reading at the end. And Hitchcock, in essence, invents the modern movie thriller. And 39 steps is seminal to that process. But he's inventing more than just the thriller. He invents some of the themes that he follows. Um, chief among them is Pamela, played by the wonderful Madeline Carroll, who I had the maddest crush on when I was 12 years old. And Madeline Carroll, as Hitchcock later said, was his first ice-cool blonde. She's aristocratic, no-nonsense, very good with words and repartee, slightly snooty, slightly unaccessible, and a perfect foil to Richard Hannay, who keeps trying to convince her that people are out to kill him. And of course, this leads to the next trope, Hitchcock's idea of an innocent man framed for crimes he didn't commit, being chased by both the police, the establishment, as well as international nefarious groups of people. And this was played out over and over and over again in Hitchcock. You think North by Northwest, um, which is a classic example of this. The man who knew too much is another classic example of this. Um, even to some extent, The Lady Vanishes, which we're going to talk about later on in the podcast, is an example. But this paranoiac idea that goes through Hitchcock, that all is not as it seems, and that the world is largely indifferent to your concerns, and that innocent everyman can be caught up in larger nefarious things, and that authority isn't necessarily on their side, and not because it's evil, but because it's stupid. And those of us who are libertarian buy into this idea that authority is indifferent to your concerns and can get an awful lot wrong and even come after you without really knowing what's going on. And that is a fundamental libertarian and Hitchcockian trope, which is probably one of the reasons I like him so much. But this is a film of both style and substance. Uh, again, the background reading, the editing, the pace, it's lightning fast and goes by at a blink of an eye. I wish today's Makers of blockbusters could learn the brevity, the workmanlike qualities of Hitchcock to move things along. And then the writing is just a treat. As they go along, very famously, Madeline Carroll and Robert Denat, who's first rate in this, just wonderful, playing Richard Hannay, and Denat and Carroll are handcuffed together. And of course, this is a symbol of men and women and being married or being a couple. And they're stuck with one another and they're bickering constantly while they're being chased. She doesn't even believe he's in danger until three quarters of the film is over. She thinks he's just hallucinating. But as they go on, the repartee warms them to one another and they begin to laugh at each other's jokes. And you really find yourself seduced by them both. You begin to enjoy being in their company and seeing what the other sees in one another, despite the fact 
that Madeline Carroll doesn't believe uh, Richard Hannay. She begins to like him. And as this process happens, being locked together goes from being a horrible thing to being a wonderful thing. Because they're stuck together, they begin to love one another. And you could spend an entire episode working through the Freudian uh, comments about that. But it's, it's a wonderful idea to, to lock a couple together. Very Hitchcock, very mordant in its sense of humor, and totally brilliantly realized by them both. And so as time goes on, you see, again, the tension building. And in effect, it's a chase scene. I mean, that's all it is. It's a chase that goes from Scot that goes from London to Scotland and then back to London. And Hannah is constantly being chased by either the police, the 39 steps, or both tied to him and unwilling Carol. But this is a new sort of comedy thriller that is unique, never been done before, utterly original. So Hitchcock, again, takes the jobbing culture that he was part of and makes something new and different and profound. And I strongly urge you to see this first great Hitchcock, The 39 Steps. Just a year later in 1936, Hitchcock made Sabotage. Although it's not as good, it's a very good movie as opposed to a great movie. Again, it's very interesting because you see Hitchcock begin to again assemble these pieces in the 1930s that he's going to use for the next 40 years and play with an increasing joy as he sets up the structure from which he's going to artistically work. And this story is, again, a ring. It, it comes from, again, very good source material. Uh, John Buchan was the source to the 39 Steps. In this case, the source is Joseph Conrad's fantastic The Secret Agent. And he takes a part of The Secret Agent, updates it to modern London, as in 1936. And the basic notion is that a ring of saboteurs have caused havoc in London by having explosive terrorist attacks. And Carl Verloc is the ringleader of this group of terrorists um, who is, his cover is that he's a kindly theater owner. Um, his wife, uh, Sylvia Sidney, who's quite good in this, Oscar Homolka plays Verloc, who's excellent, who is torn and, and stricken, and you can't decide which of the two characters he really is. Is this a normal guy trying to be um, decent, but beneath it all, the terrorism thing comes second, or is he a terrorist where the normal component is first. And this struggle within him is brilliantly acted. Sylvia Sidney is his increasingly suspicious wife who sends off her kid brother, who she's mothering, um, who is used to deliver these bombs. And the great scene in this, if the first movie, the great climax is uh, Richard Hanna yelling, quick, what are the 39 steps? The great thriller sequence here is when you realize that Carl Verloc, Oscar Homolka, is sending off Sylvia Sidney's kid brother to deliver the bombs in film canisters because, of course, he works at a movie cinema. And he sets the timer in such a way that the little boy can get away. And then without a word, and this is so Hitchcock, taking the normal and making it sinister, looking at what's beneath things, beneath the waves. And we know the bomb is set off, and the boy does what little boys do. He wanders around. He doesn't go in a straight line. Have you ever seen a child walk in a straight line? He stops. He looks at the window. He gets hassled by a policeman. He stops to look at what's going on al along the way. And the time gets closer and closer and closer. And you wonder, is he going to be blown up? Because you're aware that Verloc's wife worships her younger brother and that he may indeed be a casualty. 
of this hateful act of terrorism. And without a word, you just watch the clock. And without saying a word, Hitchcock's mastery is apparent and the tension builds and builds and builds. I'm not going to give it away. But that is the key moment about the bomb and the little boy doing nothing more nefarious than wandering across the street. And boy, does that work still. 1936 was a long time ago. And to have that still grip you all these years later is a work of significant art. The interesting thing about sabotage, and it divides critics, and it divides me, is that there's absolutely no notion of why they're doing it. There's no motivation involved in why Verloc does what he does or why the terrorists do what they do. It's just assumed in a realist sort of way that there'll always be terrorists, there'll always be bad people trying to blow things up, and we don't need to know his motivation. We need to know he struggles with it. We need to know how his fanaticism affects his wife, his kid brother, and Scotland Yard detective played by John Loder, who figures this all out. And that's what we need to know. It's all external. The internalities are just watching the consequences of the actions. The reason for the actions is entirely left alone. This is a brave decision to make. Most films have a psychological inner core. There is no inner core here. It's all externalities. But boy, does it work. And that leads me to the third movie, The Lady Vanishes, in 1938, another great Hitchcock. The two great ones of the era, if you just want to skip them, Sabotage is a very good movie, but the two greats are The 39 Steps of 1935 and The Lady Vanishes of 1938. If anything, and I can't believe I'm saying it because these two are two of my favorite 20 movies ever made, both of them, The Lady Vanishes even best by a nose, perhaps The 39 Steps, which started it all. Um, in this one, debutante Iris, played by the beautiful Margaret Lockwood, is going home from an unnamed Central European country to marry a rich, dim-witted, chinless wonder nobody, one of the two two students I ran into at St. Andrews, I would assume. On the other hand, Michael Redgrave is the annoyingly good-looking and insouciant musicologist who happens to be in Bandrika, the country, because he likes the music and pretends he doesn't care about anything when very quickly we realize he cares about Margaret Lockwood. Iris, anyway, strikes up a friendship with an older woman, a Miss Froy, um, whose name, who was Dame May Whitty, who's excellent, who plays a dithery old Miss Marple-type character, but we suspect from then on is actually a secret agent in the employ of the British, and they become friends, and they head off on the train from Bandrika. They're stopped because of an avalanche at a little country inn, Miss Freud gets on the train, Margaret Lockwood falls asleep, and then Miss Freud isn't there. And worse, and back to Hitchcock's paranoia and the world being malevolent, all the people in the carriage act like she's crazy and no such lady ever existed, and she's hallucinating. And so she desperately and somewhat angrily begins to look for Miss Freud. Well, along the way, Michael Redgrave, playing Gilbert Redburn, the musicologist, they look around, and they begin to look for Miss Freud. He begins to believe her, and they are sleuths caught on a train going through Bendrica, heading back to the UK in 1938. Um, and again, we have the displaced innocent person with the world against them. The world is inherently malevolent, at best neutral and indifferent, and at worst malevolent. In this case, the interesting thing is Iris is the primary character that Hitchcock is prepared to, to look at life through the point of view of a rich English debutante's view. And Gilbert, Michael Redgrave, the great theater actor that he was, is really charming but secondary. 
And so this role reversal, this gender role reversal is fascinating and absolutely works. If anything, the repartee between the two is even better. It's kind of a relief when late in the movie they finally hold hands because you're just like, get a room. Um, the, the chemistry between these two, which has been restrained, just explodes on the screen and the repartee. Uh, and sexual tension that build from that are fantastic. It's a very modern, very grown-up movie stuck in the 1930s sensibilities, which works. The restraint works and makes that romantic aspect even more interesting than it would be otherwise. Lastly, there's a political component to Lady Vanishes. It's 1938, and secrets are being stolen one way or the other from a Central European country, which is fascist in orientation, and a pacifist upon the train, a coward pacifist, begins to try to negotiate between the bad guys and Michael Redgrave in the epic shootout at the end of the film. And the pacifist is killed and seen to be a fool. This is Hitchcock clearly, clearly siding with Winston Churchill post-Neville Chamberlain, which was 1938, post-Munich, post-appeasement, to say, we simply are going to have to shoot it out with these guys. It's one of his most political films, and it works because of the restraint. The characters lead to their actions. Here there is an inner life. The pacifist has an inner life. He is a coward. The two lovely English cricket-loving comedy duo, one of, they've seen Miss Freud, but want to pretend they don't because they want to get home in time for the English test match. They're isolationists, but when it comes to it, like the British public, they're willing to enjoy the shootout on the side of Iris and Gilbert. That they're the British public, insular, parochial, isolationist, but they'll do the right thing when pushed to. And Hitchcock makes it clear that he's with Churchill. These three movies stand up to anything you're seeing now. And Hitchcock is a master because in showing you this, Hitch is just beginning. Hope you enjoyed this. For those of you who have, please do subscribe. Uh, we run our little local newspaper of the world with book serializations, the culture section that I've just done, Around the World in 20 Minutes, where I look at the world. We have J.L. Ryder doing the society page and Publius doing the political commentary here, as well as me also doing the Patrick Henry podcast. We are chock full of things to do and have moved on to become a full-time newspaper. But to do that, and we're overwhelmed because the subscription rate with the Ukraine war has doubled in just the last three weeks, we're overwhelmed by your response and we'll keep at it. But we need you to give. We're only asking $70 a year, $7 a month, $70 a year, so we can give you this complete, unique coverage of what's going on in the world and also do things like this, very fun cultural things that are fundamental to the things that we love in life and Alfred Hitchcock must surely be one of them. Next time, we'll look at Hitchcock through the decades, the 1940s, when, if anything, he does even better. Thanks very much, and please do give.